Well, welcome everybody. We are glad that you are spending this morning with us here at Echo. My name is David. If you are new here, we are glad you joined us. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Jesus BC. What does that mean? We are basically looking at how we have one God in two testaments. And when we think of who God is and we think of the characteristics of God, we very easily can see Jesus. Jesus is the full depiction of God's character. We think about Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We can see God. Do we do as good a job when we're reading the Old Testament? When we're studying the Old Testament God? Same God. Do we see all the same characteristics? The answer is yes. And this is our study to approach that question and and uncover new ways to look at Father God in the Old Testament. I say all that, and we're having a great time in this series, to tell you this. We're putting that on hold right now, okay? I'm going, I'm deviating off course a little bit this morning. So let me say this. If you are coming back and you were with us last week, thank you because I told some dad jokes for Father's Day. And I'm surprised that you're back, actually, after those jokes. Uh, Also, if you're brand new here, today might not be exactly a typical day at Echo Church. You might be asking yourself a few questions. Are there always this many slides Um, Why is the preacher yelling at me? Things like that. I encourage you to come back uh, next week too. But we're going to, this week, you're going to learn something this morning. If you haven't learned something, then I haven't done what I set out to accomplish. And through all that, we're going to honor God in doing that. Okay? Because I think when we try to know more about God and know God better, we're, we're glorifying Him. We're ascribing incredible value to Him. So, The thing I want to talk to you about today is the thing that I've been most passionate about in my faith for the past few years. And I've got some people here who've been in my small group from four years ago. So they're probably like, wow, David's still on this kick? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And here's what it is. There's something going on in the world right now called the rise of the nuns. You know what this is? When people are filling out, self-reporting their religious affiliation, they're checking the box that says none. People are, are, are becoming more secular. Even people that grow up in the church are leaving the faith. People that have, have gone to Sunday school and vacation and all that, they're leaving the faith. And about what age do we find that they're doing this? Young adult. So late high school, college. Our founding elder Steve has been studying this for a few years now. So this is something that weighs heavily on my heart too. And it's all about sharing And defending the faith is how I want to look at this morning, all right? So, Father's Day was last weekend, and this is my first Father's Day. Everyone heard my daughter uh, throughout communion. She's, as as we said up here, Burke said, she's just filled with the Spirit. It's all good. Yes, she is. A little more charismatic than Dad. So, (laughs) uh, I, I, I think a lot about, as a dad, things like, I want my daughter to be healthy. I want her to have good friends. I want her to do well in school. I want her to find a career that she loves. And parents, you can relate to this. But I resolve to tell you that the most important thing to me from the bottom of my heart for her is that she knows Jesus. Over anything else, I hope that she knows who her God is and that she loves him her whole life and that she has a faith that doesn't collapse when when tough things happen it doesn't blow over with the waves that is my hope for her and i know that that if i continue to pray and ask god for that he will answer but we have to do our job as parents too to make sure that she can she can navigate those storms and have a faith 
that can withstand it. So our focus text today is going to come from Acts 17. Before that, I want to show you another focal verse that shapes what we're looking at today. And that comes from 1 Peter. So we'll look at this, 1 Peter 3.15. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is the most important thing. With gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. So the people who have the bullhorns and they're condemning us all to hell on the side of the street for big events. I, I think they missed this one. This is how Peter did it. This is how Paul did it. Gentleness and respect. Uh, will you pray with me? God, thank you for Echo. Thank you for this church, a safe space to come to try to know you better. To ascribe ultimate worth to you, God. To submit ourselves to you this morning in worship. We're going to try to get to know you better, God. I believe that you gave us minds so that we could think. I know that it can't end there. Faith is a heart issue. But you call us also to use our brains. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, Lord. Help it to be yours. Your will be done in this place. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. All right. So... Let me address this first in this whole topic. There might be some people who say, nobody has ever come to faith through arguments. Nobody has ever come to faith through listening to somebody give reasons. That's, I think, in some ways true. Because I think everyone comes to faith through the Holy Spirit. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit can use different measures. He can use testimony. He can use argument. He can use working in people's life through trial and struggle. God can do anything to bring us closer to him. We see in the Bible that this is unequivocally false. Paul shares his faith, gives testimony, provides reason, and you see what happens to people as they listen to it. And if you think about some of the giants in in the Christian faith in the modern era, they came to faith because they heard someone give testimony, provide reason. C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, William Lane Craig, if any of these names sound familiar to you, they would all credit it to, hey, someone gave me the compelling argument. So that's what I want to look at. Acts 17, we'll start with verse 1 and look at what Paul says. He's, he's, he's traveling through, um, he's, he's presenting the gospel, and in some cases, he is coming before the group that he used to be the head of, persecuting Christians, and now he is coming as a Christian to provide reason for the gospel. Here's what Paul said. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul said, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So what happened? When Paul went to the synagogue and did this, what happened? We look at it in verse 4. This is what happened. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Yes. Amazing. So what was Paul's strategy? It's kind of not very specific here. He persuaded. He used reason logic. How did he actually do it? We can pick up a little bit of this picture here in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And here's what it says about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 19, it says, Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. 
To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And then here, Paul says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, and that's the title of this sermon this morning, by all possible means, I might save some. And why do I do this? I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. This is how Paul did it. Now listen, all things to all people. What does that mean? How do you, how do you be all things to all people? Aren't we called to stand out in the, in the culture and be salt and light and all these things? Yes. But if you want to influence somebody, if you want to speak truth into somebody's life, you're not going to do it if you haven't built a relationship. It's not going to work. Would you be willing to take advice on investments and stocks by somebody that you met in the, you know, the U-Scan line at Kroger? Probably not. But you would take that advice from somebody that maybe is a coworker that you have lunch with or, or your uncle or something. Because you built relationship, we are open to taking advice. So how do we, how do, we do this in a world that's so divided right now? We find one thing out about somebody and it automatically shapes the rest of things that we feel about them. How do we be everything to everybody? What I've done and how I've tried to construct the rest of this morning is to pick a few ways where all of us are alike. Because I believe that's what Paul did. So we're going to work through that. How are all of us alike? The first thing that I want to present to you is investigation. Investigation. You'll see what I mean here in a second. But everybody loves to figure out why something happened. We love to have a bunch of puzzle pieces and figure out how do I get these all together in a solution. Think about the most popular things in, in entertainment right now. CSI, uh, Dexter, the, the OJ Simpson thing was huge recently. The biggest podcast are Serial, Up and Vanished, all these different murder mysteries. We love these things. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe we're sick and twisted. I think it is because we all love to try to figure out the solution. We all love to go on the twists and turns to come up with what makes the most logical sense. Maybe the most popular one in the past few years is this. Do you remember this picture? Do you know what this is from? Making a Murderer on Netflix. I won't go into this too much, but I did see that last week, Brendan Dassey, no spoilers here, actually was, uh, his conviction was overturned. He's still in jail, so he's trying to, we're trying to figure that kind of stuff out, but was that a spoiler? Sorry. Making a murder was, I think, December 2015. And after 30-something days of that being available on Netflix, 20 million people watched it. <laughs> it is incredible. And you still hear about this kind of thing. We love investigating. We love being taken on this journey. What does it look like in the Christian faith? Has anybody dug into the gospel in this way? The answer is yes. J. Warner Wallace wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. Have you heard of J. Warner Wallace? He's, he's a homicide detective in L.A., for over 20 years, he was the guy who came in and solved these cold cases that no one else could, could do anything with. He's a decorated guy who's, who's partnered with a SWAT team. And he's one of the foremost people in, in forensics right here, J. Warner Wallace. Wasn't a Christian. When he became in about his 30s, he came to a crossroads in his life where he tried to decide, what is the meaning of all this? People he knew were faithful people. How does this work in my life? I think I'm too smart for this. He ended up using all his skills that he developed over the years to solve cold case crimes. 
with the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection. Did that actually happen? The book is fascinating. It gives ten basic points, strategies that he used in homicide investigation to, to figure out. And he came to the conclusion, of course, this did happen. This is real stuff. Okay? What's one of the things that he looked at? And one of the things that I love most in this investigation theme is the Bible. Is the Bible valid? Now, we could have an entire series on this, so forgive me for how expedient I am in navigating this particular topic, but the Bible, is it valid? It turns out that Christianity, our book, is the only one of major religions where we say, this is not something that somebody dreamt up, this is not all visions, this is placed in history. (laughs) The Bible tries desperately to help itself be found. You know all the lineage, the names, son of blah, 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 son of... The stuff that you and me skip over when we're reading the Bible? That's there so that we can trace it back. All All the times it names places and what kings were ruling at the certain time. And gives us all this stuff about culture and language. The Bible is trying desperately to tell you that, look, we are recording history. The New Testament, this is not some kind of thing that somebody dreamt up and wrote on paper. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, but recorded history. So with that... There are tests that we can run for any documents in antiquity. We run it up against a few tests. I'm, again, not enough time for this this morning, but let me give you the top two questions that we can ask of any ancient text. Number one is this. How many copies do we have? We don't have any of the originals from any ancient text, text around the first century or before, but we do have copies, and sometimes they come very close to the original date. How many copies do we have? Here are a list of some of the... Most prominent, and this wasn't cherry-picked to make a compelling case. These are the things that we all know as truth. You learn this stuff in high school and college about Aristotle and Plato and Caesar's Gaelic Wars and Homer's Iliad. And look how many numbers of copies we have over here. This is pretty good stuff. Aristotle, 49. Plato, 210. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, 251. And wow, the Iliad, I think this was like 900 BC, 1,757 copies. That is fantastic. No wonder we believe this stuff is true. Nobody ever questions if Aristotle actually wrote this stuff. You know how many New Testament copies we have? This is updated. This is, you know, recent. We continue to get more. Here's how many. 24,633 copies. The same stuff, you know, without contradictions. The New Testament kills all this in the, in the test of how many numbers of copies do we have of documents in antiquity. So that's the first one. The second one I want to present to you this morning is the distance between the original, the original autographs when it was written, and the very first copies that we have. What is the distance there? We want it to be small. So let's look at some of the major, major documents in history. Aristotle, 1,400 years between his original feather to quill to paper, rock, rock to stone, I don't know. Plato, 1,200 years. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, 1,000 years between the original. The Iliad, 400 years. That is phenomenal. Where does the New Testament stack up with these? 25 to 85 years. 25 to 85 years. The, uh, the copies that we have, the earliest ones, come from the same lifetime as the people who wrote it. They were still walking around. People that were with Jesus through his life in the Gospels. We have stuff that goes all the way back there. It destroys all the other ancient documents that we don't question. This is the New Testament. Amazing stuff. 
The Bible is 66 books written over 1,600 years, 40 different authors, three languages, and three continents. And this is what we have. Another fascinating means of investigation is archaeology. I'm not doing any of this stuff. I just want to present to you a few different things in the topic of investigation. Archaeology is amazing. Well, just find something that disproves something the New Testament says. Just find something that we can hang on to. Nothing does. And a few ways that they try to criticize over, over the years is they would pick main characters in the New Testament and Old Testament and say, how do you know that this guy or this woman ever lived? We don't have any proof. Pontius Pilate was one of those for a long time. He's a main person in the narrative of the Gospels. Remember, he didn't want Jesus' blood on his hands. He was there when Christ was crucified. How do we know he was there? We didn't for a long time until 1961. This was uncovered. This is a limestone tablet that was found in the region of Caesarea here. And when archaeologists uncovered it, they found an inscription on it. And it said, to the divine Augustus Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. The exact right place, the exact right lineage of who the king was, found in the spot that it's supposed to be. Pontius Pilate. It's now, you can see this in the Israel Museum. Second piece of archaeology I want to share with you. Major, major character. King David. I mean, the Old Testament, it's a lot of King David. Is he a real person? We didn't know if he was for a long, long time. Until 1993. 1993. uh, We uncovered this. This is called the Tel Dan inscription. And it was found in modern day Israel. See, what would happen is when they would conquer a city, they would write on the tablets outside of the city the people that they conquered to, to kind of boast about it and glorify themselves. Whoever this, this king was, this ruler who conquered the city, wrote on this front of this wall from the house of King David. It says something about slaying thousands of Israelites, Judaites from the, from the house of David. So this does two things. It references the most, one of the most prominent Old Testament figures. And it also credits him as being the founder of the nation of Judah. This is crazy. You can see this today in the Israel Museum. Just in 1993. A quote that I want to share with you from a professor of archaeology at a real tiny, not very academic school. Um, on the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the excavation of Palestine. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics from Miller Burroughs from Yale University. Just find something. Everything we find continues to corroborate what we see in the New Testament. My favorite, the best for last in the conversation of investigation, cultural icons. The New Testament, think about it. What does culture mean? We see this stuff all over, all over the scriptures. Um, what did people eat? How did they dress? What were their burial pro- uh, processes? What was the topography like of the land? What was their language? There are so many different things we can pick from culture. One of the most compelling is names. Names, what we call people. Do you know what the most common names are right today, last year, in the United States for, for boys? I'll put them on the screen. United States, it was Liam, Noah, Ethan, Lucas, Mason, Oliver, and Aiden. Most common boy names, United States, 2016. Do you know what they were when I was a kid, when I was born? None of these. It was David, it was Chris, it was Nick, Matt, John, these type of names. Totally different in just that short amount of time, you know, almost 30 years. 
England, same time, 2016. What are the most common names in England right now? Well, they're Ezra, Asher, Atticus, Declan, Oliver, Milo, and Silas. The only similarity you see there in the top seven is Oliver. They're very different. We both speak the same language predominantly in these countries, but the names are totally different. What's up with that? So let's look. There was a study in 2003 by a secular German scholar, and he just looked at all the ancient texts from Jewish boy names, not using scripture and stuff like that. No, no religious text, but, you know, burial tablets, other documents and records that they had at the time. Massive amount of data to uncover what were the top names of the day. So in Jews in Palestine, the region where the Gospels unfolded, here's what the names were. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, Ananias. Those were the most common names. As a control group, Egypt, there were Jews there. There was a Jewish community there too. The Gospels didn't happen there. They didn't write about what was going on in Egypt in the Gospels. What were the, at the very same time, what were the most common boy names for Jewish boys? Eleazar, Sabbateus, Joseph, Dosephaeus, Pappas, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. Again, you see Joseph is interchangeable, but do these look like New Testament names to you? If you're not an eyewitness, how are you going to know this stuff? I mean, right now, if, if, do you know what the most common names are in Canada for boys right now? You could Google it, but they didn't have that luxury. They don't know. When we have somebody who has the same name as everybody else, my wife's name is Amanda. Every white girl in the 90s name is Amanda. So basically, in college, we called her Amanda Reed. Uh, I also have stepsister Amanda and her roommate Amanda and, you know, Amanda from grade school and redhead Amanda. You come up with little descriptors, right, for people who have common names. If her name was Eloise, what, you need no descriptor. You just call her by her name. How does the Bible handle this? Remember these names here on the left in the order that they kind of come in, the top seven names. And when we look at the Bible, does it give descriptors for these names that are common? Here we go. Jesus had two Simon disciples, the number one name. He called them Simon Kephas and Simon the Zealot. Jesus had dinner with Simon the leper. Simon of Cyrene helped carry the cross. Simon Peter was an axe and Simon the tanner. James, number 11 on the list. James was the son of Zebedee. John, John was number 5 on the list. It was John his brother. It was John the Baptist. Philip, Philip is ranked number 61. Way down, not a common name. There is no descriptor. When you read Philip in the New Testament, it's Philip. Bartholomew was 50th. Again, no identifier. Thomas, not even top 100. Not a common name at all. We call him Doubting Thomas. That's not in the Bible. There's no descriptor. Matthew was number 9 on the list. Remember him? He was the tax collector. James was number 11. He was James the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, 39th place. Not common. No descriptor. Simon the Cananean, number 1 name. Judas, number 4, was Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. If I were to ask you right now, what are the most common British names in 1970, I don't think any of you would know it. This is eyewitness testimony. The quality of this stuff is undeniable. Investigation, weighing the evidence, this is what we come up with. Second, second construct we're going to look at today. Investigation, one thing that we all also know about, take interest in, subscribe to, is morality. Morality, understanding right versus wrong, good versus evil. Every adult person with you know, the brain capacity to do so understands right and wrong. Everybody does. It, there are still totally evil people and people who we think 
do good, but every human understands this. Romans 2.15 speaks a little to this. Paul says, The requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The reason we know right and wrong is not because of evolution or social norms. It has to come from somewhere. We have a moral code ascribed to us because we have a moral code giver. Let me ask you this scenario. You're in a Chinese food restaurant, okay? You sit down, you finish your meal, and you, you, you can't wait. You're popping open the fortune cookie, right? You look at the fortune cookie and you're reading it. The fortune says, get up out of your seat and leave now. Are you going to do it? Fortune cookie told you to. No, you're not going to do it. You probably laugh, put it on Instagram. No, you're not going to leave your seat. Second scenario, same Chinese restaurant. You're, you're done with dinner. Lady next to you, table next to you, don't know her, leans over and says, get out, leave. I want you to leave. That's a little weird. Are you going to do it? What's your reaction? You would probably first ask, who are you? Why? But you wouldn't do it. Third scenario, Chinese restaurant. You're done with your food. A lady next to you in this table next to you leans over and says, hey, get up out of your seat. You need to leave now. I'm with the FBI. We're about to bust this place. So you got to get out. Are you going to leave? You're going to leave. You couldn't get out fast enough. Why is that? Same, question, same command given to you. You only leave on the last one because you feel obligated. There's an authority figure there. There's an authority figure. Social norms and all this other kind of stuff are not authoritative. We have a, a, a great authority that has, has given us an obligation to be good because he is the author of good. Okay, let me ask you this question too. Do you think I'm tall? Do you think I'm tall? Kind of, maybe. Yeah? Okay, say, um, say I'm standing next to Shaquille O'Neal, seven feet tall. Do you think I'm tall? No, not really. Say we, we pull out Echo Kids right here and we line, they line up next to me. Am I tall? Yeah, probably. How do you even make these assertions about my height? I will tell you, it's because you have something to compare them to. If I was the only human on the face of the earth... The only person, there's no one else. Could you, and I ask, I don't know who I'm asking. (laughs) Do you think I'm tall? I don't know. There's nothing to compare to. I've used this before, but God is our infinite reference point for meaning, for truth, for morality. The only way we can talk about something that is good is because we know the ultimate good. God, he is the reference point. Without him, how do we know what is good and evil? I apologize for what I'm about to show you here because I talked about Ravi last weekend. But, you know, I was getting my house ready to move all week and my podcast time was low. So I'm, I'm, this is archive stuff here. This is special. <laughs> Ravi Zacharias is a Christian apologist. And one of, the, one of the stories, he's a big guy on morality and the objective morality and how this defends Jesus and, and uh, witnesses to God. So I have to share this. He was at a conference talking how he normally does. Somebody who was there as an opponent of the faith came up to him after. And forgive me for this. I'm, I'm going to give it to you exactly how Ravi explained it. But the guy came up and Ravi's speaking about objective morality. And he said, I don't believe in evil. And Ravi's like, you don't believe in evil? What do you mean? He's like, yeah, I don't think things are evil or good. I don't think that exists. And Ravi says, and this is 
where I'm asking for a little grace. He said, and, okay, bear with me. If, if I pulled a, a, an infant up here right now, Robbie's saying this to this man. If I pulled an, a little innocent baby up here right now, and I just off with the kid's head. Tell me, sir, what would you, how would you react to that? And he sat there for a moment and said, I wouldn't like it. And Ravi says, I think you need to find out why you wouldn't like it. You can deny the fact of evil, that it doesn't exist. You can deny the face of evil, the devil. You cannot deny the feeling of evil. We all feel that. You can, no matter how hard you deny it. See, we are all designed with this ability to distinguish between right and wrong. And it's because we're image bearers. God has given us that gift. To be able to choose good. And, and survival of the fittest is not the answer. Because often when we look at that and say that, oh, we're doing something good for the group, we're doing it good for the group because it ends up benefiting us. It looks like unselfishness, but it really at the root is selfishness. It is because God has given us a moral code and everyone has it whether you follow him or not. The third thing here, investigation, morality, amazement, awe, wonder, beauty. When we look upon something that turns our stomach in butterflies and we are speechless in that moment. Can you think about times when this happened? Look, I'm about to move to Indiana and the, the topography is about like this stage. So I'm really thinking about Cincinnati right now and the Seven Hills and how there's something. Why do we love that? It's because when you're standing at the very top, and I think about CCU right now. It's a beautiful view up there. I remember one of the first days I was at seminary and it, it, it sits way up and you can see downtown. I sent that picture to people and said, this place is beautiful and you know everyone loved it. Why is that? How? What good does that do? How does beauty benefit us all in wonder? What does that give us in the survival of our species? I don't know. I think that's a problem for the non-believer. I'll show you a terrible picture from my iPhone 4 from the very first time that I flew into uh, LaGuardia Airport. And my wife from Connecticut... So we were traveling up there to see family, and everybody else was kind of asleep while we're approaching, and I am not well-traveled at all. So I'm, I'm leaning over her, just gazing out. I've never seen anything like this before, and I'm amazed at the picture, and you should be too, because look at the quality of this. And I'm just thinking, how do you not believe that there's a God? Look at all this smog and smoke. No, <laughs> I, I was thinking, first, the expanse of this whole thing. How beautifully carved out this little Manhattan is. And then also man's creation. Didn't create anything from nothing. But we take God's resources and make beautiful things. And I think all of that bears witness to God. But beauty and amazement. They come because we are in awe. It's a small piece of the glory that we will one day see when we see God. When we see Jesus face to face. There is no scientific explanation for them. So Psalm 19, 1-2, I'll share this with you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Every once in a while, there comes a time where the whole world stops what we're doing, and we all drool over something that looks amazing, that captures our attention. Sometimes it's something beautiful in entertainment. Sometimes it's something miraculous in sports. Sometimes it's space exploration. Do you remember this photo? This photo comes from about two years ago. It's from the New Horizons um, spacecraft. And basically in 2006, I think, we launched this 
projectile into space with the mission to just find out more about Pluto. I think at that time, Pluto was still a planet. I'm not letting that go. Pluto is still a planet. I think it's a dwarf planet, but we're going to count it. So it takes how many years? About eight, eight or nine years for this spacecraft to go all the way to Pluto. I mean, it's traveling at 36,000 miles per hour. It gets about 12,500 kilometers from the surface of Pluto, takes photos like this, and we've never seen this before. In all of human existence, we have never seen something like this. And the whole world stopped, and we forgot about all kinds of other stuff because we were all amazed. Doesn't matter what you were b- believed, we were captivated at this discovery. You don't have to look at space. What about human life? Uh, we, we took, I was going to say I was made to, but I... I lovingly accepted the challenge to take baby classes before Reed was born. And I don't remember much from those. We didn't use many things from the baby class. But I do remember being fascinated at fetal development, at babies developing in the womb and thinking of things like at, at, at five weeks, the baby has a heartbeat. At 10 weeks, organs and fingernails and toenails. At, at 20 weeks, they can start to hear the sounds outside at 30 weeks they're dreaming i don't know what they're dreaming about they're dreaming about something i was amazed by all this how a woman's body prepares to to deliver the baby and how we we can look at dna what in the world dna (laughs) this code that we can barely fathom that tells us you know that our wheatley kid is going to have you know squinty eyes when she smiles and her toes are going to do a weird cross thing when she sits in a certain way dna does that so science tells us how God tells us why. Science tells us how, and God tells us why. I believe that the most unscientific thing you could ever possibly say, and look, I, I study science outside of here too. That's, it's my background academically. I think that the most unscientific thing you could say is that all of this came from nothing. All of this came from nothing. That is so unscientific to me. Uh, one quote that I'll wrap up this amazement part. Uh, John Lennox is an Oxford mathematician. One of the smartest dudes on the planet. All right? And he has this quote. I'll try to paraphrase it for you. He said, I am fascinated that we could walk out onto the beach, see the letters of our name in the sand, and instantly just say, some intelligent being purposefully wrote that for me. But at the same time, we can look at 3.5 billion letters in the human genome, perfectly strung together, operating like some impossible machine, and say, I think it's chance. I, I think it just, it just happened like that. Incredible. My friends, God declares the wonders of him through what we see in the world. And we are all amazed by it. We can see him everywhere we look. What do we all have in common? Investigation. We love getting to the end of things. Morality. We know right and wrong. Everybody does. And then finally, we're all amazed. We all can understand what beauty is, this intangible thing. We know what beauty is. Still to me, the most compelling reason for Christ is none of those. The most compelling reason for me to believe is you, is me. You, sitting right here in this seat right now on June 25th, 2017, East McMillan at Echo Church. How did you get here? Why are you here? Is it just chance? Or does somebody who knows you intimately, who loves you, unlike you could ever believe, carved out a path to where you could end up at this space right now? Did somebody work all of those things 
together. Would you call it a miracle? Because I know that I would. How I came to faith. Through another broken person. Who in his life was a militant atheist. Had tragically chosen to abort his baby when out of wedlock. Tried to kill himself. Didn't work. Failed at that too. Became a Christian. Because somebody shared with him the reasons to believe. That guy I'm just referencing found me. On campus in college, when I was lowest point of my life, shared with me the reasons. It's not just that. Your heart changes. The Holy Spirit works. This is not a mind thing. You don't think yourself into this. But God gives us the ability to do that. I am not a Christian because my grandma told me to be. I am not a follower of Jesus because I can sleep better at night. Those things happen, but that's not why. I follow Jesus because... Of every other possibility in the world for all of this, it makes the most sense. And because God has changed my heart and I've seen him change so many other people's hearts around me. That's why I follow Jesus. It is okay to be a thinker. This church is a group of thinkers and it's also a group of people who love. Who love people boldly. And that's the, I think that was how the church was designed. Let's, the very end of Paul's, I told you about how he journeyed to these different places. Let's look at what happened when he went to Athens. Paul said, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God did this so that we would seek him And perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to bring the dead to life. That is why our Lord came. And my challenge is not that you become a biblical scholar. Although I am not one. We have some here at this church. My challenge to you is. Can you defend your faith? Can you, can you boldly, if, if, if the right situation presents itself, can you give testament to why you believe? It doesn't have to be something scholarly. I see God everywhere. Can you give testament to the faith, the reason why you believe? Because that is where hearts and minds changed. Paul, Paul uh, shared and explained reasons to tons of people, and it always says, many were saved. Many followed him. Some didn't. That's going to happen. It's going to happen a lot. Many followed him. It worked for C.S. Lewis. He heard the testimony. William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel, a guy named, a guy who shared his faith with me, and it worked for me. Who might be the next person that we could encounter? It's head and it's the heart. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you today and this morning for giving me the ability to reason. God, you call us to have a faith and sometimes we cannot see. Sometimes we cannot see in that moment, God, but also in the next breath, Lord, we see you everywhere in undeniable presence. The validity of, of, of the truth is everywhere. So help us to open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see you with fresh eyes. Everywhere we look and give us the boldness and the wisdom to be able to share our faith and defend it so that we can 
we can overcome the challenges in life. And we thank you for all of this in, in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.